Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack where Zach is about to flounce off because he's just found out that in real life velociraptors were the size of chickens. You right, Zach? Um, no, I'm having a massive... <laughs> I'm going to sit here for the rest of this interview and sulk because you basically The feathers were bad enough, this. but now you know they were chicken size. Yeah, basically Jurassic Park is a massive lie when it comes to... I'm not know. having it. I'm not having it. They're six foot tall, like giant turkey things with... Stuff. <laughs> You're ruining your my head. childhood right here, Alex. Sorry. It wasn't only me. It was our guest today as well, who is the absolutely lovely Matt Pope, who is back. Tell us about him, Zach, if you can still bear to after he's just destroyed your child. <laughs> Crushed my entire living knowledge of, of like everything from three till five. Um, <laughs> anyway, Matt Pope is a principal research fellow at UCL, aside from being a lovely human being. And he has a particular interest in how humans used and discarded tools during the Paleolithic period. And I've got to try and work out which one is the Paleolithic period, but no doubt we'll get to that in a moment. He's published a number of works, uh, including Settlement, Society and Cognition in Human Evolution. But basically, you came on to do the, ne the Neanderthals and everybody loved it. So we had to have you back. How are you doing, Matt? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm, I'm, I'm amazed we've gone to dinosaurs already. Absolutely. I know. <laughs> oh, you were Foxgrove man as well, didn't you? And you were saying, like, we also, we have done a bit of dinosaurs. So we've gone back into that. I mean, like, Zach and I, we get back before ancient Egypt and we think we're miles back, but we learnt from you um, the first time you came on. Yeah. But actually, we're not even scraping the surface of the hum human history, are we? So we decided this time that instead of dipping in and out, or Zach decided, because he planned this with you, that we're going to do, like, a a potted history of human evolution with you aren't we so that people can try and get their heads around it yeah let's just do a kind of a bit of a an overview yeah yeah, yeah. just try and get a framework there um which which just puts everything in perspective in terms of time so we can see where the box grove people come in neanderthal people come in and when our own species emerges and we can talk about what it is to be human because we're going to be dealing with all the different human species Oh, this is going to be so good. I get so excited when you come on and I decide I'm going to go off and be like a, a more ancient E-type before pre-ancient history type. And then I just get sidetracked back into World War I and forget all about it. So the next time you come. So this is going to be great. Zach, get started. Because we're going to be looking yeah. at archaeology specifically, aren't we? As a we tool are. for plotting this story. Yeah, I love this. This is the first thing that I did. They gave me a little microscopic bit of teaching at Southampton a couple of uh, years back. And basically the first task I gave the my students was, here's a whole load of events, put them in order. And the first one was like, when were the Neanderthals around? And they had no sense of that, that scale. And so it was really nice to kind of turn around and say, yeah, okay. So we think pyramids, that's going back 4,500 years. But in the grand scheme of things, humans have been around since like last Thursday in the story of the <laughs> life of the earth. So we need to get yeah. over ourselves a little bit. So we need to help our listeners get their heads around that concept yeah how how can you have the archaeology of 
other apes, I guess, is, is an important starting point. How does it work? And how far back do you have to go? Do we, are we talking like Lucy as the first human, which I'm trying to pluck this from memory, is that like one million, two million years back? Or is it even, can you go back even further? Yeah, I think this gets us right to the point of, uh, you know, what is archaeology? You know, archaeology is a series of techniques and tools that allows us to understand things that happened um, in the past. And we can do archaeology of anything. You know, we can do the archaeology of the present. We can do the archaeology of what's going on in the streets, in the gardens. Archaeologists laughing. Archaeology of the present is just going to be a whole load of discarded face masks, isn't it? Absolutely. They're everywhere. <laughs> and, and it was really exciting to see how our landscape changed mm. last year. Last year, you know, there was an entire, you know, new patterns of rubbish appearing. And, you know, we, we, we've been another project. We've been trying to capture that through the viral archive. So archaeology is just a set of, of, of techniques. And if you take archaeology to dinosaurs, well, there's a whole load of techniques there called ichnology, which looks at footprints, looks at the trails left by tails, looks at the burrows and nests and things that dinosaurs made. Um, a great ichnologist called um, Anthony Martin wrote um, a book called Dinosaurs Without Bones. You know, how can we do understand dinosaurs just by looking at what they made, what they left behind? I get really excited because I think, well, one day we're going to find a dinosaur that somehow used a stone, you know, in some way, maybe to, you know, in its beak to crack open something. Who knows? But there could well be all kinds of complex things that dinosaurs were doing, and it would be basically archaeological techniques that would tell us that because it's not telling us what they look like it's telling us what they did when we see footprints we're not just seeing what the foot looks like we're seeing their gait are they walking are they waddling are they running you know these are these are really exciting things now we know that there are lots of dinosaur fossils if we were to have reconstructed human evolution just from human fossils not something that i study but the remains of, uh, you know, human ancestors through their skulls, through the, the bones of their bodies. Well, you know, it's not a huge amount of material, but we are very lucky that most of our evolution um, <laughs> took place alongside us evolving to use tools. So we were leaving behind lots of good physical traces. So the archaeology of human evolution, as we're going to talk about today, is how do we tell that story of how we got to be human today by looking at those physical traces um, that were left behind? And to go to your, eventually to your original question, yes, if we look at other apes, if we look at other primates, um, uh, especially chimpanzees, but to, to, to another degree, and we, we're seeing it with capuchins, we're seeing it with um, orangutans, they have material culture. They make tools. They leave traces behind. Um, and you can go into parts of, of Western Africa. You can carry out archaeological excavations and you can find the remains of their archaeology, you know, from hundreds of years ago. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to do. You're just using exactly the same techniques. Really dumbass question here. But, I mean, you talk about going to, to West Africa and, and my kind of ladybird history of human evolution tells me it's got something to do with the East African Rift Valley and all of that. But how do you know where to dig? I mean, it's not like what we would call standard archaeology in inverted commas, where you've got settlements, you know, you've, you can perhaps get a better sense. People leave maps behind accounts. How do you know where to start? Yeah, it's this, this project of, uh, of very early human archaeology begins effectively as a geological exercise. What you're looking for, first of all, are geological deposits of the right age, anywhere on the globe, you know, because if you've got those deposits surviving, you stand a chance of finding the remains. Now, if we find deposits of a million years old and it's deep sea sediment, well, we're not gonna find it there, but if it's sediments that are lake edge sediments, riverbed sediments, or, the sediments left behind by ancient land surfaces, what we call paleo soils, the, the ancients, then we stand every chance of finding footprints, bones. The other place you can look, of course, are big sumps, places where bones and tools collect. So caves, 
sinkholes, you know, depressions in the landscape where stuff gets washed in. So you begin looking for it geologically. To answer that question about West Africa, East Africa, you know, human evolutionary processes were probably taking place right across the African continent. Africa is probably where the early stages began, but it's where things survive. West Africa has a record, but there's a lot more forest cover there. Um, uh, there's been a lot less research there. Whereas in East Africa, you've got this great big tectonic um, rift in, the, in, in East Africa, just like Madagascar's peeled off. The whole of East Africa is pulling away from the rest of Africa, you know, over millions of years. And it creates this rift valley system. And it's a big sump in the landscape that at various points in time filled up with lake sediments that had water that attracted game, that attracted early humans, but crucially preserved it within, within really deep deposits. So, yeah, you begin geologically, find the sediments, and then you start surveying, you start looking. And in terms of the preservation process, does that have an impact on the types of material that you find? Or are there certain things that you're never going to find because of that preservation process? Yeah, exactly. If you, uh, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about dinosaurs and now that, you know, we've we know dinosaurs were feathered and we're now looking at their pigments and we're getting these tra these um, <laughs> these these traces of them well so much of human evolution has been lost to us because so much organic material has been lost not just the you know the skin and hair of early humans but potentially their clothing tools that they were making out of wood to um tools that they were making about out of other vegetational materials you know it's exceptional circumstances. We can talk about some circumstances where those things survive, but it's exceptional. You'll find organic stuff. What we do find are a few bone fragments when, when it's luck, when, 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 when luck's on our side, but they're stone artifacts, stone tools, because these things, you know, are robust. They're not really going anywhere except in extreme circumstances. So that's why we're dealing with the stone age because it's the stone elements of their culture um, and their technology that are surviving for us to, uh, to study. I'm keen to know just how scant your evidence is. I mean, I'm not, I'm gonna, this isn't me going, <laughs> you're a fraud, but I just, <laughs> dinosaurs are obviously, a T-Rex is big. If you find a bit of a T-Rex, perhaps yeah. it's easier to find, I don't know, but in how little do you have to go on the further back we go in human history, in the history of human evolution? I mean, do you, is a skeleton or like, Boxgrove man, just a holy grail that you hardly ever see. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a growing body of evidence. And now, if we were to put everything to everything together, every fossil, human fossil, um, you know, we could we could probably fill out a large lab now with with specimens laid out. But if we're thinking of the time that we're dealing with, we're dealing with human ancestors. You know, almost three million years. Um, they tend to be in kind of clumps of time. Like, you know, we've got quite a few fossils, um, say from, from East Africa between, you know, three and 1.8 million years ago. You know, if we think of early Neanderthals in Europe, the earliest Neanderthals in Europe, where you've got 30 of them in one cave in Spain, maybe sort of in one incident, but for the rest of Europe, it's hardly anything from that point in time. So it's really patchy and really sparse. If we come up with stone artifacts, even what we have recovered is now probably in its, you know, hundreds of thousands or low millions of stone artifacts that we've recovered. What's out there is in its billions. It's, it's a record, you know, of, of unimaginable uh, size if we think of it as individual stone artifacts. And that's because people are making stone artifacts for such a long period of time. So, you know, Given the time we're dealing with, given that it's a planetary record, yeah, maybe maybe it's small, but actually what's out there to be studied um, is really significant. Can I just go completely off script and ask yeah. you, what is, what is, what's the oldest discovery we have um, and what is it classified as? I mean, it, obviously it would not be Neanderthal because we've talked about those and they're much later. So the oldest one I'm guessing is Africa. And what did you say about three million? So what does yeah. that find <laughs> comprise and, and tell us and what do we call that? 
Well, look, let's let's be, let's keep this focused on the archaeology of human evolution because yeah. you know if we're thinking about human remains, that's uh, that's a slightly different subject. But we've yeah. got a really important site that is at three point three million um, years ago in East Africa called Lemekwi. Mm-hmm. Um, Lemekwi was only um, discovered um, a few years ago. I think it's five years ago now. It was it was it was, it was published, and what we have there. Oh, some really quite chunky but simple stone artifacts um, eroding out of a bad land environment. The, um, you know, the, it's, it's quite an arid environment. And uh, re- research team had come across these artifacts eroding out of these badlands that dated to 3.3 million years. Now, there were no bones, fossils that could tell us what species of human made them. And in fact, it's not probably, it's, it's a technical question whether we call any of the upright apes around at the type human at all because we're probably dealing with a different genus we're of the genus homo um yeah. you know homo, homo um you know comes in at about 2.7 million years at 3.3 we've got the genus australopithecus um range of different species adapted to forest mosaic and open environments almost certainly scavenging um meat from carcasses but also processing plant foods as well probably one of these australopithecine species left behind these stone tools and they're really quite clever stone tools they're not very simple they know how to fracture the stone to get really good sharp edges um, they know how to use stones you know as kind of sort of anvils maybe for processing material and that's you know a different genus 3.3 million years and we give a name you know we have to give a name to um, these different ways of making stone tools. And it's so distinctive, they called it the Lamequian, um, after the name of the site, Lamequia. So there is a, that's a name given to a culture, a way of yeah. making tools, just sort of a different genus of ape at that, that uh, bipedal ape at that point in time. You've got to name it. I tried to convince Steve Brassard to name the next dinosaur he finds Davosaurus, but I don't think he was buying into it. <laughs> what is his name? Davosaurus. Yeah, Davosaurus, yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't like ask for it to be named after you, Alex, to be honest with you. Like the Churchosaurus. Only, only if it's like complete badass. No, because Winston will just get the credit. You can't name species after yourself. You have to name them after someone else. Name them mm. after Dave. Yeah. Um uh, sometimes in our line of work, tiny microscopic creatures called ostracods turn up, which are new species. Um, but yeah, yet to yet to get our specialist to find a new species so I can have one. <laughs> That's an aim. <laughs> have an algae named after you. It's better than nothing. So how many, you were talking about, we've got different types of human because we've got different yeah. gen, genuses, gene, yeah, genine. Yeah, yeah. How many are we talking about here? I guess it is a first question, but that's a bit kind of basic, but also I'm interested in how they interact um, do you see crossing of genetic lines? Do they essentially stay apart from each other or do they conflict because they're all competitors for the same kinds of resources? Yeah, this is this is um, this is a really interesting question that we can't easily answer when we're looking deep back in time because we haven't got genetic evidence to to see the rates of gene flow between different populations. But if you know if we were to think of a snapshot maybe around a million years ago. You know, there's almost certainly going to be a whole range of different species, even within our genus at that at that point in time. We can see points in time where even even most recently, let's take a snapshot, say, around half a million years ago, you're going to have um, Asian erectus. You're going to have archaic Homo sapiens, a species we call sort of, um, you know, Homo heidelbergensis, the early Neanderthals, the hobbits. The, uh, the small uh, uh, Southeast Asian Homo floriensis, and then, you know, other species like Homo naledi, you know, that we found, that we've actually, that survived to us and that we found, you've probably got 10 um, um, uh, separate species at that point in time. Probably actually in terms of gene flow, quite closely related, and probably there's the perfectly capable of interbreeding amongst most of them, which means some um, some specialists are going away from thinking in about hard species boundary here and just thinking about kind of ancient populations. It's really difficult for us um, because 
there is just one species of human for us. Our entire point of reference for what it means to be human is about variety within one species. You know, when we conceive of different types of human, it's, if, if it's not in, in biological terms, it's in the realms of science fiction or fantasy where things are really kind of exaggerated. We don't know what it means to have different forms of human that, you know, are, are so closely related to us, we could probably, you know, have, have children together. So it's very difficult to understand. The archeology span of human evolution, when we look at the stone tools, kind of dissolves things down. Because although we can find lots of differences and lots of cultural differences, it's pretty certain that we're actually seeing these technologies shared between different populations. So even though populations might look quite different, they're doing sometimes very similar things. Um, at points at which you think, well, maybe there is competition going on. You know, I just don't think it's particularly viable to have in long evolutionary time antagonistic competition between different species that degree of diversity is probably mapping on to ecological differences in the landscape. Even if we're finding the bones close together in time, that could still be hundreds of years and changes in ecology. So probably we're dealing with lots of little population subspecialisms in, in the landscape. Really want to ask you as well, you're talking about difficulties. How do you know? I mean, obviously, because you're smart and you've studied this and it's your job, but how do you know when you find a bit of rock that's been worked like they do in Time Team and they get really excited about it when we all just go, this looks like a pointy bit of rock yeah. to me. How do you know which species is produced? Is it down to the location you find it in yeah. or are there certain traits in how they work tools? Is it easy or is it really difficult to tell which sort of subset made them? Yeah, so, so it's really difficult ultimately to know which species made it, even, even if you know that generally these type of tools are associated with this species. You can never know for sure if you just got the tools. In terms of that understanding, so there's plenty of things that you, know, you can teach someone in terms of how to recognise a tool, a, a stone artefact versus a natural rock. There's particular patterns of features. For example, you'll see where it's been hit. You can see where a shock wave has gone through the rock. Some rocks you can disregard immediately because you would never make a stone tool out of it. And those things you, you can teach, and some people get it, some people really get it, and some people just, just don't get it. So uh, we know pretty, pretty quickly with, with our students, the ones that have a flair for it. And then you've just got to have lots and lots of experience um, just seeing endless amounts of tools. We go through sieving tons of gravel in the course of a year, you know, to, to get a few hundred artifacts, you know, at most. And then you go to one site and every single stone you see is actually an artifact because it's in the sand and there's no other stone there. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it, becomes, it becomes a skill. And then the second stage is you're looking at that technology. You're saying, well, People were only making tools like this in this particular place, in this particular time period. So it's likely to have been made by um, this species. But Are you one of the rock whisperers? Uh, Are you uh, one yeah. of the rock whisperers that can just pick it up and know? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm, I'm one of the people who have a really good guess and a go at trying just on the basis of looking at one tool to, to understand it. But you know what? Ultimately we work as part of these really big teams yeah that have geologists that have people who understand riverbeds that will go and look at these things under a microscope will tell us when we go running into the lab that actually no you're deluding yourself <laughs> and we're constantly giving each other a reality check because there's no way you can test you know there's no chemical test for you know something being a stone tool or not so and, and most of the time it doesn't matter if you're wrong, particularly because you might be just finding artifacts in an area where we know there's artifacts. But you know what? If you're working in a country or a region or a time period where we didn't think there were any people at all and you find a flake and one artifact and you are so sure this was made by a human, that flake suddenly becomes scientifically really important. Mm. And if you're wrong, what you're going to publish is, you know, going to be going to be discredited. So and we know, you know, that, that people have got it wrong um, um, in the past. 
And we know that some people are so cautious, they won't publish. So sometimes it can become really high stakes. Um, throw, in, throw in a fraud like Piltdown and then people really, really start <laughs> getting nervous. Tell us about the fraud. Well, Piltdown, we should do Piltdown as a whole episode yeah, yeah. One, day, one day. But but yeah, Piltdown, 100 years ago in Sussex, um, a solicitor claims he's been given this, this fossil skull with a load of stone artifacts. The fossil skull wasn't anything of a sort. It was a, a fabrication of a orangutan jaw, a chimpanzee tooth, a large, chunky, modern human skull and a load of stone artifacts that have been stained red to make them look old. Um, and that was, what, 1912, and it wasn't until um, 1952 or something that the fraud was, was exposed. So, you know, people wrote loads. People based their whole career on taking it seriously, and it was, it was, it was a fraud. Yeah, so, so, you know, we have to be careful. People bring stuff into us, you know, Never take anything for granted. Always check. Always test. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. In terms of the skill and the sophistication of working stone, today, you ask the average person, take a Love Island contestant, for example. Yeah. Um, if it's you... scraping the bottom of a barrel now. <laughs> <I'm sure laughs> you might as well have gone. Take a complete moron that likes to walk around <laughs> wearing no clothes. You, you can tell where I'm going with this, though. If yeah. you put a, a piece of flint in front of them and said, "Here, do something useful with that," they'd they'd look at you as if to say, "So what? Are we meant to set it on yeah. fire or something?" Yeah. In terms of the knowledge that's yeah. required. Obviously, all things are relative because you're dealing with a, a society that doesn't have things like a written language. Everything's going to be vocal. They wouldn't have any kind of language that we would recognise as as a language today. So what's the skill level like to work stone in this way? Because today we leave stonework to professional masons and so on. How I mean, do they have perhaps this isn't something that we can even know, but is this something that everybody would pick up? in the same way that there is learned behavior within nature about pretty much everything? Or is this something that they would have left to specific individuals to work the stone in the right way to make the right kinds of tools? In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah. Well, we're dealing with such a long period of time. 
so it's impossible for me to say any statement that, that, that kind of covers this all but going backwards in time certainly when you're getting to the late stages of the stone age when you're dealing with our own species maybe to a degree um um some other closely related species like neanderthal people you can see some technology that looks so refined um it's quite specialized that maybe there are people in the group who are excelling and focusing on that but still probably quite widely it's not like when you're getting on to the, the 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 bronze age and you've got a bronze smith or a gold worker or a, a leather worker you know even in later stages skills are probably quite spread throughout the group go back even further than that and almost certainly these skills are pretty ubiquitous we're not we're, we're seeing quite uh unified toolkits um that seem to be made made on mass and you can see it something like a butchery site where you've got lots and lots of different activity areas and everyone's kind of doing the same thing to, to a degree, making stone tools. In terms of those skills, um, you, you're starting to touch on what is our great adaptation. Um, and when we look at stone artifacts, one thing it shows us whether we're looking at 3.3 million years or much later, say to around 300,000 years ago, although there's lots of technological innovation you know, it's not massive leaps all the time. Um, we've got relatively small changes over time in the increase in the size of the brain. Um, but that's probably for things other than stone tool making. That's probably for things like language, like social intelligence, like understanding what other people are thinking, developing kind of uh, theories of what people might be thinking about you. This takes a lot of um, uh, brain processing. No, our great adaptation is that we don't have to have the knowledge to make stone tools hardwired in us. So yeah, I think you're being unfair on those Love Island contestants. <laughs> there's, you know, they haven't got it on board as like a software element, or sorry, a hardware element, how to make stone tools, and no one has taught them. What we do have is culture. And that means that we can be taught and then once we know we can teach other people um and basically our, our, our brains provide you know the frameworks to learn to explore to watch other people to mimic them so what we see with these kind of uniform um patterns of stone tool manufacture within a region within a point in time is a culture um and that's maintained yeah culturally um and that's really exciting because once you've got that it's plastic it can adapt, it can change, it can innovate. Um, you literally have to have complete extinction of the group before the knowledge itself um, goes, goes extinct. Um, so that's really what the archeology span of human evolution is doing. It's tracing largely through stone tools because it's all that survives cultural processes, um, allowing us to adapt to different environments. I really want to know, in terms of these social processes, I think Zach's pinpointed one in the notes that I think is really important, is we assume that at one point everybody wandered all over the place and then humans decided to settle down and stay still. I mean, I could tell you Bedouin in Jordan now that's still nomadic and they're still nomading, that's an official word now, nomading around and doing their business. But is that true? Is there a point in the archaeology where you can see settlements more settlements than you did before and is it just an an age thing because they've had less time they've had to survive or is it because more people started stopping in one place yeah that age thing you know um are we just missing that evidence because it's so old mm. we've always got to keep that in mind you yeah. know it's always like a reality check on anything we say but if we just look at the archaeological record you've got some indications of kind of uh you know not permanent bases, but home bases, places where people are living, places where people are bringing materials together, maybe things like creating fire. You've got some glimpses of it beyond a million years ago and around 750,000 years ago. There's a few sites that show it. But then, bam, after 600,000 years, after half a million years ago, you see it in Africa, in Europe, in Asia. You don't see just 
you know, sites where they're just bringing down an animal and butchering an animal, they're hunting animals elsewhere and then bringing them back to a cave or to a rock shelter or to a point in the landscape where they've managed to set up a windbreak or something. And this is exciting because it means that we're starting to get a signature in the archaeological record that's for um, a home, a place where they're living. Now, almost certainly there's places where they're coming together and nesting and sleeping together um, and, you know, where they're put in the sick, where they're having babies, that, those kind of social activities. But we just don't see it in the archaeological record. I personally think we don't see it in the archaeological record way back because they're not feeding them. Those, those aren't places you want to have food because it will bring in carnivores. You want to keep those bases clean. And if you haven't got stone tools and you haven't got the bones of what you're eating, you're not going to find it. After half a million years ago, they've got control over space, especially with fire, maybe with numbers. Now, these aren't going to be permanent all year round homes. You really don't see that until, you know, within the last 10,000 years. But they're places that they might come to at particular seasons, at time of the year, where they've been coming to it throughout, you know, generations. And they come back, they're at this cave, it gives them access to a valley, maybe when animals are migrating through it, like, you know, the reindeer are coming through at this point in time. And they'll just light the fire that they'd left extinguished a year ago, then, you know, re-establish re the shelter. And that's really lucky for us, because once we find those places, we find everything. We find their food, we find their residues, and sometimes we find things like their burials and things like that with later species. Well, let's tap into that. I mean, burials are one of the things that we talked about while we were putting this episode together. So, I mean, the trouble, we were talking about this just uh, a couple of days ago, weren't we, Alex? Mm. That the issue with the burial is that the person who's buried doesn't really have a say about what's buried with yeah. them. And also it's, as well, there's a difference between a burial that's ceremonial and stuff and just chucking someone in a ditch. I mean, can you tell the difference? Well, you can imagine we spend a lot of ink <laughs> deciding <laughs> what it is. I mean, we're dealing with funerary practice here. And, and ultimately, yeah, funerary practice, there's the disposal of a body. You may just want to dispose of that body for hygiene reasons. Um, and then there is a set of cultural practices that are about yeah. treating the dead, about yeah. processing grief. Yeah, so it's like, is grandma just starting to smell now? When do we see like grandma stinks, get rid of her, change into we need to say goodbye to grandma and give her a send off and do the whole ceremonial religious thing? Exactly. What Zach was going to try and get. <laughs> and that and that ceremonial, you know, uh, habit of how you deal might not be particularly elaborate. It may be just simply taking a body out, leaving it in a tree, putting it in, you know, putting it in the gr ground. There may not be much that's particularly elaborate, but when we find holes that have been deliberately dug, sometimes holes that have been, you know, lined with stones, bodies that have been placed within them very carefully, and then particular objects introduced at the same time, what we call grave goods, especially when you've then got something like stones placed on top to stop carnivals getting to it, it's inescapable that you appear to have a grave. And it would be you'd have to be really perversely pleading that this was just some kind of hygienic disposal of body trash. No, I think we all know when we see something that really looks like care of the dead. But what about the site of Cima Los Huesos, which um, is in, in Atapuerca um, in Spain? It's a, it's a site of perhaps one of the earliest kind of special deposits of humans. It's a, it's a hole. The Cima is a, a shaft in the ground where around 30 young adults were thrown down 400, uh, 420,000 years ago. These are early Neanderthals. It doesn't look like a normal death profile. If you think of who normally dies, it's normally young children and old people. They are missing largely from this. It's kind of uh, young kids, young adults. Um, so, so that's a bit strange. Um, they're not living in there. Um, it doesn't look like it's an accident. One of them has got two wounds on its head, like a double tap that it's been stabbed 
twice, maybe with a pointed stone tool. Um, so you've got you've got violence and you've got a single large stone tool. Uh, this this beautiful red, um, what we call a hand axe, it's like a knife, um, but made out of made out of stone. And they call it Excalibur because, you know, it's, it's kind of got this mythic feel to it that was discarded into this pit as well. Now, who knows what went on there? There is violence, there is a strange profile, there is this strange red tool, but these are early Neanderthals and they aren't just getting rid of the trash. <laughs> you know, there's something, there's a, there's a cultural, ritualistic disposal of the dead going on. Um, and that's really exciting. It's really from that point in time, we start to get these little hints, um, but it's not really until after after 100,000 years ago, especially with late Neanderthals who were doing a lot of burial practice. And then with our own species, um, both um, within Africa and outside of Africa, that we start to get regular funerary um, behavior, including some cannibalism that probably isn't down to just feeding and starvation, but very deliberate, probably ritualistic consumption of the dead. But that's much later in time. So let's talk about us, as it not as in us three, but as in Homo sapien. Yeah. When we first appear, and is there any kind of real distinction that stands out when we suddenly come onto the scene, or are we just another group at first? No. So in, in terms of defining when we um, appear as a species, we're really over back into the hands of the paleoanthropologists, the people who are studying studying skulls studying bone morphology because you start to get within the um within that record um around 300,000 years ago a combination of features um you know um, a a a, a lot an enlarged um brain case of a particular shape relatively small teeth you know quite um sort of uh, sunken cheekbones a little face that's sitting down underneath this this large cranial ball quite a distinct morphology um, but um, at that point in time, you are not seeing radical changes in, in behavior. If you look at the archaeological record around that time, it's part of a general progression through, through, through technologies we call effectively Middle Paleolithic, the Middle Stone Age. They're a point where they're making increasingly sophisticated tools, but they're making them in Europe. Neanderthals are making them. They're making them in the Near East, into Asia. And into 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 Africa, what you start to see is um, lots of little innovations. But these innovations you can you can find mapped usually in in the Neanderthals as well. It's not really until um, within the last hundred thousand years when you're starting to get the movement of modern humans outside of Africa, and you're probably got getting a lot of complicated evolutionary processes going on in Africa. You know, the, the new work by Ellen Scarry and others are seeing, you know, modern humans evolving in different parts of Africa in a kind of a mosaic way and kind of coming together and coalescing into into the form and the and the, the cultures we find now. Then something strange is happening when modern humans are, are leaving Africa because they are encountering other species of humans and what seems to happen is wherever they're encountering them, they are to a degree assimilating them. These other human populations disappear. We say they are going extinct, but then if we look within our genetics, we will find traces of them in different proportions, depending on, on, on where you grow up. So when we talk about us and them, when we talk about modern humans, there's a difference between those modern humans just before they left Africa and modern humans now, homo sapiens now, because now we carry, you know, um, these traces of those other populations. Something really, I, I think something really social was going on there. There was almost certainly competition. There was almost certainly, you know, uh, unconstructive encounters. But I think ultimately that story is one about meeting and assimilating and sharing. Um, and, you know, why not? If your population's moving into a new area, you're at a disadvantage when there's populations there who have language, have culture, understand where the food is, understands what's toxic. You know, sharing information is what we do best. Um, and that is when you really see things change. 
You don't see things change when you've got just Homo sapien uh, morphology. It's when Homo sapiens start doing something different in terms of sharing information. When you start to see things like cave art and personal adornments and uh, yeah, jewelry and painting and artwork. Um, I think that's the real threshold of something, something you going on. So would you argue that that inclination to assimilate is what makes humans so successful? Or is there something else that enables the humans to proliferate in the way that they do? I don't know whether it's necessarily uh, uh, an inclination. It's that we are incredibly social species. Our evolutionary niche is being hyper-social. You know, we, I guess if we went back 30 years ago, you know, or maybe 50 years ago, it was all about technology, you know, and, you know, we were in, we were in kind of paradigms of, you know, man, the tool maker, man, the hunter, you know, you know, we got where we did, you know, I guess we just got to the moon, didn't we? We just got to the moon because of the slide rule and the computer and the rocket engine. So, of course, that was our evolution. I think what we've learned since is technology is a product of culture and culture is a product of hypersociality. And that's really what's what's good that we can encounter another individual and we can read them we can read their intentions we can you know we can present ourselves in a non-threatening way we can de-escalate things things don't need to be a competition there's the space for negotiation and sharing um and not entirely in you know um altruistic ways you know sometimes you know, it's all about having an advantage so um, the work of Robin Dunbar, um, you know, who, who, who looks at human, human brain size um, and alongside uh, Leslie Aiello just looked at um, basically primate group size and the size of the neocortex in the brain, this bit that does all of this social processing and found a really good correlation. The bigger the groups, the relative bigger size of the neocortex, because that allows you if you if you are capable of, you know, handling social information, reading what's going on, then actually it becomes possible to main big, maintain bigger and bigger networks and bigger populations. And if you've got bigger populations, culture can pr proliferate, innovations can be sustained. And, you know, if we really were, if we really were, you know, uh, competitive um, apes, and I know people like to kind of like... Uh, you know, be down on humans, you know, for, for, for all of that. There was no way we'd be able to have 9 billion people on the planet and, and even, even stay in a tube, crowded tube train, you know, for more than a quarter of an hour. I think, you know, we, 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 we do ourselves down sometimes. Hum, the human story is actually a really optimistic one because most of the time we're not killing each other. It did make me laugh when you said that it was an inherently social species and Zach was like, talk for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm not speaking for myself either. No. At what point do we start talking about the start of the civilization and um, with religion and buildings and the structure of a social group? What's the key to that? When does that happen? Yeah, we're getting out of my wheelhouse here because, you know, that's yeah. a, an This is way too modern for you, isn't it? Way too modern and, you know, a complex discipline in itself to understand how, how you go from that kind of mobile you know, a recombining of, you know, large groups at some times of the year, fragmenting out other times of the year to actually in bricks, mud bricks initially, you know, actually setting social structures in place, you know, in, 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 such, a, in such a rigid way. Um, all we know is that you can see some of those building blocks of that. You can see some, you know, real flourishes of real sort of, you know, almost semi-permanent settlement and sophisticated hunter-gatherer groups that are, you know, starting to do things like produce pottery with, with, with the Jomon in, in, in Japan, building large monumental structures in the near, near East. Um, you start to see that at the end of the last ice age. But then, of course, it's in this tiny warm stage we're in at the moment, the Holocene, which comes after that, that it flourishes and it flourishes alongside agriculture. And you've got that change in resource base. When we've had three million years of evolving 
you know, hunting and gathering, albeit complex patterns of hunting and gathering to farming. That's the big, that's the big tipping point. But, you know, at the moment, we're trying to make sense of how we're coming to have a big impact on, on this planet. And really, you can take that back to our Stone Age, early humans. We talked about the advantages of lighting fires, you know, in caves. Almost certainly, you know, once you start using fire, people are suffering lung disorders, probably lung cancer, you know, you know because there's a downside to all of our adaptations. Um, it's just that we're doing it on such a large scale now. So when does, as far as you're concerned, the archaeology of human evolution end and it becomes what lay folks would probably think of as plain archaeology? Is, at what point, I guess I'm asking is, would you look at something and go, no, you need to tell that to someone else. That's, that's not for me. That's not for me. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, you know, for me, you know, I, I kind of understand stuff when I'm finding it in the geological record when I'm trying to have to make those decisions we were talking about at the top of the show, you know, is this really natural? How far has it moved? How can I re reconstruct human behavior? There comes a point, you know, when we're, when we're dealing with the Mesolithic and the Neolithic um, of, of Europe, when, um, you know, the, the stone artifacts are just a small part of it. You've got the structures, you've got the huts, you've got field systems, you've got pottery, you might have early metalwork. And actually the nuts and bolts of, of what I deal with is just a bit of it. You know, you need lots of other specialists. So, yeah, I guess in Europe, I hand over, um, you know, pretty much when the forests start growing at the end of the last ice age. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's only five minutes ago, right? Yeah. Matt, this has been incredible. I've forgiven you now for spoiling the dinosaurs for me because that was that was so wonderful <laughs> although um, i have found the picture of the the uh, no i'm i'm not going to see it i'm, I'm not going <laughs> to look at it i refuse to matt seriously th this has been great thank you so so much thank you when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.